You know a dream is like a river, ever changing as it flows, and a dreamer's just a vessel that must follow where it goes, trying to learn from what's behind, Never knowing what's in store Makes each day a constant battle Just to stay between the show Hello ladies and gentlemen, I am Maxwell Ivy Known around the world as The Blind Blogger And this is another episode of What's Your Excuse? Where I'm going to try to help you overcome the excuses that are holding you back By sharing conversations with people who have overcome adversity, thrived in spite of difficult life circumstances, struck out on their own and created a new unusual business, or who have real world tested advice to help you take action and accomplish your own goals. And of course, I will also have on people who I personally like, respect, or would just like to have a conversation with if I think they will benefit you. Uh, you can find the podcast at theblindblogger.net. You can also find the show now at wyexcuse.com along with the other podcasts on the Y Network. Uh, I'm on Apple and Stitcher. You can also tell Alexa and Google, hey, play What's Your Excuse? So I do hope you will check out the podcast, uh, listen to some of my past guests, and hopefully be entertained, educated, and inspired by them. I also hope that you will visit our sponsor, which is Blueberry, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com. They are providing the hosting sponsoring for the podcast and the network. And really, it would, wouldn't be able to do this without their financial and technical support. I will include an affiliate link to Blueberry in the show notes so that if you're considering starting a podcast, you can get off on the right foot with some great people over there. That's at Blueberry.com. And as they tell me when they first started, they couldn't afford the E, if that helps you remember it. So today, I have another great guest, and in fact, uh, one of my first guests in several months. Uh, I, have to, I have to admit to y'all that while I did my best to keep going after my laptop broke, trying to do things with just my tablet and my phone, uh, I did get a little bit behind. I failed to schedule new guests, and I have a few great interviews y'all haven't heard yet because of it, but... You know, the best thing we could do is just start again and do better. Just like to be honest with y'all, today my guest is Jenna Ashland, and she is a writer, graduated from University of Rio Grande and Marshall University. Those are a couple of very fine institutions here in Texas. Um, she's won awards for her writing. She's done two books so far. The first one is called uh, Into, Into the Gray. It's, it's about a, a woman who's trying to, uh, trying to deal with life after the becoming a widow at a young age. And her most recent book, which just dropped in a few days, like in the last two or three days, it's very exciting to have a new book, uh, called Sheila's Bend, which is a fictionalized account or what we call creative nonfiction of 10 years or of of her life uh, in a marriage where she suffered abuse and also unwanted attack 
unwanted attention at work. And the books are designed to help other people who are going through difficult times like hers so that they'll hopefully reach out and get some help. And in fact, she works with an organization called Survivors Advocacy Outreach Program. And while I was waiting to go live with y'all, she actually had a call from one of her clients. Now, obviously, we can't go into that, but it was really cool to see one of my guests at work. Uh, y'all can find Jenna Ashland uh, on Amazon, on Facebook, on Twitter. And I believe I'm going to have to get her to correct me on the website. I believe the website is, is uh, jennaashland.com. Uh, so I do hope that y'all will give a warm welcome. Jenna, thank you so much for being on the podcast, and please feel free to correct me wherever I've got anything wrong. All right, so I will start with that. <laughs> um, the University of Rio Grande is in Ohio, and I actually studied there for two years before um, I got married and started a family, and I really didn't have the funding to continue um, later on. Um, more recently, I studied at Marshall University, um, and that is in West Virginia. Um, there's actually a movie about them called We Are Marshall. And um, I haven't had the opportunity to um, graduate mostly just because of funding. And um, that's pretty much it. <laughs> but. Um, well, you can't blame a yeah, today It's interesting. He, yeah. Well, you can't blame a Texan. Here's Rio Grande that serves its home. Um, yeah, I hear that. <laughs> so as I've learned a little bit about you, the one question that just keeps coming back to me, and oh yeah, I forgot to tell people that uh, in a few months you're actually getting married after this uh, journey that you've been on, so congratulations for that. Thank you. Yes, yeah. So the one question that keeps coming back to me is, is just how do you keep going? Where does where does that strength come from? That I think you call it uh, quiet strength or elegant strength in the description of your book. Where does that come from? How do you get? How do you just keep doing that? It's I don't know a good answer. I mean that's not a good answer, but I think it's determination. You no, know? um, I'm. There for a while, I was like a wounded animal determined to live. Like there, there was a time whenever I really didn't want to because I didn't see a way out and I became um, very suicidal. But, you know, just kind of, you know, maybe it's my kids, maybe it's hope, you know, just that not wanting to give up. Just there's this inner fight in me that is going to do the extra work, is going to go the extra mile and... You know, I tend to look outside of myself and, and realize, you know, not every, not everything is about me. Um, you know, I just kind of like a mechanism and, and then it just wasn't anymore. And it became about, you know, Hey, this book could really help people because there's not a lot out there that really details like people's experiences and gets in the mind of the person going through it. That way you kind of understand their perspective, why they do the things that they do. And, you know, when they don't recognize the abuse at first and then start it and just fight and that determination to want to get out and want to survive. Okay. So you said you just, 
wanted to keep going. So is there, is there anything in your past or your upbringing that, uh, that taught you to be that kind of a person to start with? Um, yeah, probably. I had, um, I grew up very poor. I had a, a very determined grandmother and she's like this person writing about her, um, in a book that I'm about halfway through writing it right now. Um, and she was this, she lost her, she has a story all her own and she was from the, the coal fields of West Virginia. And you know, she had to quit school when she was in like fifth or sixth grade. And to, so she could stay home and take care of their kids because she was the oldest daughter. And whenever she grew up, you know, she moved to Ohio um, with her husband and she started working at the hospital as a nurse's aide. And before long, um, she started just kind of soaking everything up. And now, mind you, she only had a sixth grade education, never graduated high school. I mean, that's it. And she just soaked up all the knowledge and information and didn't give up. And so they actually waived the the classes and stuff and allowed her to take the test to be an LPN in the state. And she like graduated. She had like one of the top scores in the state. And then she did it again and became an RN. So this this little old woman from the Colfe West Virginia went from a sixth grade education to be a re- to being a registered nurse. And so with that kind of comes, you know, in our family, a lot of very strong, very determined women. Uh, all right. Uh, and it's, I would have thought that uh, growing up in poverty like that, that um, it might be difficult to, to see yourself as successful or, uh, or being or ever be ever being financially well off does do does does poverty is poverty cyclical just so, like sometimes abuse is cyclical, cyclical. I mean uh, obviously you're making a, a success of your life but I imagine there are a lot of people who grew up where she grew up who their family is still uh, stuck in that we're going to have ten kids and we're going to work for the coal mine and that's all we're ever going to do. Uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that in my local community too. There's just like status quo that, you know, you are where you are and you just accept it. And, um, for some reason I was just never like that. I was never okay with just being part of the pack, so to speak. Um, my fiance says there's always one and I'm that one. (laughs) And so he, he came from, was over, I guess there's two, but <laughs> that, well, that wants to stand out. That isn't, you know, that's kind of against the grain and I've always been like that. So. Right. Right. Now, uh, your when people read your books, what would, how much would you tell them is fiction and how much would you tell them is, is real experiences that uh, are just being, just being shared under other names and, and locations for legal purposes? Um, we're within the gray. Um, like only the first few chapters are, are about 50 to 75% real. 
within the grave, kind of like what should have happened and what I would have had after my husband died, you know, all stuff around my, my husband that died is, is actually a hundred percent accurate. Um, but the rest of it is not so much. The rest of it's kind of meta metaphorical. Um, and you don't know that's happening if you're reading the book. Um, although there are some scenes because Gray is actually a place because she goes through like this series of psychological um, dreams and visions that kind of mirror what's happening in her real life. And it's it's really an interesting book. But there's a lot of metaphors and like combined events within the Gray. However, Sheila's mint is like 90%. Um, accurate and and it is for legal purposes that you know I changed names descriptions um, some locations and like some of the habits and things like that to kind of you know not get sued so <laughs> you know one of these days I'm actually going to have to think about things like that when I write I have a a good friend named Cassie who's like whenever she introduces me to people she'll tell them two things if she tells them nothing else, she tell them two things. One, Max is a writer. And two, be careful what you say because you might end up in his next book. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So how difficult was it to write about these things? I mean, because you've written two what I would imagine are very emotionally challenging books for you as, a, as the author. Um... The first one took years because I was literally writing it to myself emails while I was working. Um, like whenever I'd get lunch breaks or something like that, I'd pull up like the, the tablet or something. I'd, you know, put in my email address and I would just kind of write. And I didn't have like Microsoft Word or anything like that. So, that, I mean, that's how to do things. And um, so it took years. Um, Sheila's men happened six months, maybe less. And... Um, it just kind of poured out of me like like water. Once I got to that point, like I had I wrote the first couple of pages like years before, and then I just set it to the side because like I was still going through it, and I didn't know what it would really become yet. Um, but I knew that those first few pages were like really powerful, and I really felt them. And and then. I started writing in a journal. It was part of my healing process, writing in this journal. And there was like two things that kind of combined together. And I changed it to first person's perspective. And I got real honest and it just came. And it was crazy. <laughs> it was crazy how fast it came, but it was extremely difficult. I went through like a lot of, a lot of tissues and paper towels and toilet paper and whatever I had on hand, you know what I'm saying? And it's, uh, I mean, it was definitely an interesting process because I had to love about myself and, um, you know, some parts that were really, really hard to write are not the ones that they hard at all. And, and that was really surprising to me because a lot of the stuff I had dealt with, this just kind of helped me recognize my own patterns and, it helped a lot with the healing process, but whenever I got to the parts, um, there's one part in the book where um, Prince Charming finally shows up. I'm going through this healing process. So whenever that part came, like, 
I, I, I called him into the room. We broke open a, a bottle of wine and, and we kind of celebrated a little bit. I was like, yay, you finally here. Because <laughs> I could write about the good things too. So that was really nice. Right. So let's let's look a little bit at the chronology here. Um, how old were you and your first husband when you lost him and became a widow? I was 30 years old when I became a widow. Right. So and, and a lot of people would think, you know, maybe 30, maybe 30 isn't young. But when you lose somebody that close to you, it's always too soon. Yes. Well, yes, that's, that's very true. Um, a lot of the times when people think of they sick of someone in their 60s, 70s, or 80s, you know, um, at a much older than, say, 30 years old, whenever you're really just starting your life and you have little children, you know, um, so it's kind of a completely different situation, but just such a devastating loss because, you know, that life that you thought you were going to have is, has been taken away. And how how long do you believe the it took you to grieve over that loss before you uh, before you continued on in your life? Um, I really the opportunity to um, grieve that loss because um, men were kind of coming out from everywhere, and um. I kind of needed a friend or something. I wasn't really in my right mind. The only thing that I knew was like, all these guys are coming around. I don't feel safe. And I need to kind of deflect them as much as possible. So I um, made a friend and, you know, I told him, hey, I'm not ready for a relationship or anything like that. But, you know, hey, let's hang out. Let's get to know each other. Kind of a situation. And because I just wanted somebody around so the that all these other guys would start leaving me alone and um he wouldn't go away and at first he respected that I wasn't ready for a relationship but all he really did not he kept pushing and pushing and wearing me down and eventually you know um, he kind of convinced me that hey this is you know, and so my thought process went to, hey, this is a really guy. I should give him a chance. It's not his fault that, you know, I'm not ready. I shouldn't let him go. And so um, I ended up in a relationship and eventually ended up marrying him. Um, and he became my abuser. And I wasn't allowed to mourn. And that's kind of why I started writing within the gray in the first place. Because I was using it as a way to cope and to mourn and remember my husband had passed away. And it was a way for me to imagine like the decisions that I should have made. And that was part of my growth and heal. And I'd say about halfway through the relationship with um, my abuser is whenever I realized everything that was going on and started hatching a plan to try to get out. Okay. All right. And so eventually you did uh, leave him, uh, and I think in your book you mentioned that it was 10 years of physical and sexual and psychological abuse. Uh, yeah, it's about 10 years. And how, I mean, how do you survive something like that and then eventually get out of it? 
Um, I was wore down, like, really. I was really tired, and um, I ha- he wouldn't go to work or anything. He completely refused until I told him that, you know, I wasn't going to support him anymore. Like, right when the divorce, right when I'm getting out is whenever he got a job. And um, he refused completely at that point. Um, and I had to, I think my kids kept going. Because I had, I have three kids and, and they were quite young at the time. So I wanted to give them a good life. So I worked a lot and that kind of robbed me of, of a lot of time with them, but it also allowed me to be able to, to find a way out. So I kind of just turned it off whenever I could, like I kind of ignored it. And there's all these mind games and stuff that they, that they abusers can can use against you to where you think you're the problem and you get mental health and I got a lot of therapy and just started to grow and as I was was right within the gray it kind of gave me the strength and you know the time that I did get to spend with my kids it became about them or or just focus on my job um it was it was really hard it's kind of I guess that inner drive in me that came from my grandmother was there, just refusing to give up. Right. And uh, if I understand it, um, even while you were married, you also had some pressure from men at work. Is that correct? Uh, Yes. Um, At one point, um, I ended up in an own marriage because he wanted that because I was gone all the time at work. Um, And... You know, he kept insisting, pushing for it. And I think for me, that's whenever, like, everything stopped. Like, that's when, like, mentally, our marriage was over for me. I just couldn't get him out of the house because um, he refused to leave. And, you know, I owned my own home. I had kids. It was where we go. There was no shelter. There was no room in the shelters. No family members or anything that I could do. So I, yeah, I ended up in an open relationship. So um, my abuser would like post things online and, you know, insist that I do all these acts and stuff. And I was literally like hiding at work because I was working far from home in a big city and like I had guys everywhere and, um, my district manager wasn't like one of the best people because he would, he made me work a lot harder for, um, you know, my position and my promotion um, than what he did the others because the others would, you know, have coffee with him and they'd run up and give him a hug and a kiss on the cheek. And I was very personal and I, I just went up and I shook his hand and there was so much flirtation, everything going on in the workplace that i mean it's ridiculous there was a drastic difference between um how he treated the ones that would openly flirt with him um compared to how he treated me okay and was there one specific event that led you to finally divorce him and get out um a lot of that kind of like around my kids and he 
would fit with them. And there was one time, like, he pushed my dirt really hard and she ended up on the floor and all the kids started crying. And, um, the, and that's why like their straw broke the back. And I told him, I was like, you know, you're going to have to work on these things. You're going to have to make a difference. You're going to have to do better. You know, we work on this relationship for a while. Cause I didn't want to just buddy up because part of me was still wondering, Hey, is, is this my fault? I've been married a few times. I can't keep doing this. And, um, you know, the way he's treating his mouth was just not okay. And I'd had enough because I would work the time. And then at home, all I ever heard was arguing him and the kids. I, I think that was when I was like, okay, listen, you're out. I'm, I'm going to go out. I'm going to find a way to get people and stuff and you're getting out but he didn't leave until the day of the divorce whenever it was final and he was assaulting me almost every day um up to the very very end and during this time period was there uh, no attempt at any intervention from the authorities um there was a time that the police were called. The instance that I mentioned with Mater, um, she called someone else and and kind of let them know what was going on. And the police showed up, and he um, he was like standing on the other side of the door whenever the police officer um, asked me. Because so he's like standing on the other side of the door. He could see me like a little bit in my reaction stuff. He's and the officers is everything okay here? And, you know, I kind of explained what happened and stuff. And he's like, do you feel safe? And like, I, and the thing is, you know, they're, they're going to arrest or question somebody because he was very nonchalant. The, the officer that came to the house was, and what didn't really seem to be getting it seriously. He's just like, so is everybody okay here? And I, I had a choice, but to say yes, because if I said no and or said that I was scared that they're just going to pull him out there, ask him for a couple of questions. And, and then he's just going to end up, you know, still in, still in my house or, or at best, he's going to be gone for like a day. And, and then what am I going to do? He's going to get more violent. And, you know, that's like a very dangerous situation that law enforcement doesn't really help a lot with. Um, I had made calls to a crisis center too about marital rape. And they said that, you know, it was basically my word against his and the um, community that I'm in is not big enough to, the hospital isn't big enough to afford, um, you know, the the nurses and stuff to be trained um, for rape kits. So there was literally nothing that I could do. I see. And then after you finally divorced him, uh, how long was it before you uh, Got to the point where you could start uh, start dating or having having friendships with with men at that point. Um, I actually um, friends well more that because we were in an open relationship for um, a couple of years. One that I kept shutting down, um, and then he would kind of beg his way back into it. But um, during time, um, I did make a friend 
so seeing we were mentally were broke up and split up at that point and that's whenever I started like the healing process and starting to learn myself and I would tell him that I was going on dates just so I could go um down by the river and um spend a little time journaling and and being without him and um getting a chance to kind of work myself and do things that I wanted to do so the process began um well long longer than and um this guy who kept coming into the store and um he he and I would just have like really good discussions about um relationships psychology and mental health and just a lot of really in-depth deep conversations and like neither one of us wanted to be in any kind of relationship and neither one of us trusted like people of the opposite sex but you know it was like a year that um he and I were just friends and would talk occasionally and then we became whenever um things got really intense um me getting rid of my abuser we became close friends and we remained close friends for another 6 months and then um you know even though we tried not to like feelings and stuff started to naturally develop and um he's actually um a psychology student and he's uh, getting ready to graduate and he um he kind of helped me through a lot of it and he had some healing and stuff that he needed to do also uh it kind of both ways and slowly over the course of like a year to uh develop feelings that we couldn't really resist so um it was it wasn't long after the divorce before we ended up in in a relationship but it was a very slow um careful both of us communicating very deeply and uh, and only but at the same time um I'd been in the healing process and separated from my husband for uh, like um a couple years before. So that's kind of a tricky question. So well, there are very few questions where the answer is is television easy. That's true. Yeah. Uh so for some of this time you were being forced to be part of an open marriage. by your husband at that time uh that not something i've ever run ever met anybody who had experienced um uh, is uh what is your opinion of people who say that they could do that i mean because there are people who claim to be doing it voluntarily um it's not my place to judge them I know that it was a situation that wasn't good for me, but um, you know, I can't. Yeah, for me, you know, I'm there. I've done that. I bought the t-shirt and I returned said t-shirt. But I can't judge um, that lifestyle and um, how they live if that's the way. Um, their relationship works and that they're happy and they're both willing to be in that situation then you know that's their choice and it's not my play judge on that fair enough and then i just was uh, this one i was wanting to get your comment on something that i heard recently uh through barrymore over the last week has gotten a lot of attention because she's 
talked about how she doesn't know how to date as a single mother with young daughters. Um, going through everything you've been through, how has that been with you and your, uh, you have one daughter that's part of a set of twins and then you have another one who's 15. How is that if, if you're okay with speaking about it? Um, yeah, fine speaking of it. I don't know that my situation is difficult because I never had any trouble um, at all. I mean, it's hard to kind of balance being a mother starting a new relationship because, you know, if you're dating and stuff, you know, if you want to bring somebody home, you can't really do that. But um, I don't know. I'm just, I guess I don't get it because there's always a way around around um, situations and, you know, you don't bring kids to a date and um, I don't know how old her kids are or anything, but a lot of people do talk about how hard it is to date it as a single mom, but it really doesn't have to be, you know, you can get babysitters and go out on dates and stuff like that, but you have to be careful. And there's a lot, of, there's a lot of guys out there that don't really care or mom or not, or kind of expect you to. So um, you know, maybe it's a, a little, maybe they're limiting themselves, I guess. Um, but like, I don't want to be offensive or anything, but you know, some people have a hard time with it. I certainly didn't have any difficulties at all. Um, at any point in my life, it was like never really an issue, but maybe that's, you know, cause I live in a small community and and guys kind of expect that, you know, maybe they're just not looking in the right places. Okay. All right. I am uh, speaking with uh, Jennifer Ashland. She's an author. Her latest book, She Was Man, just came out this week. She works or at the, uh, the support advocacy outreach program in Ohio. Uh, helping other women who are suffering abuse. And um, we've been having a good conversation here. So I'd like to talk a little bit about your writing. I, I loved how you said that when you didn't have time to write, you would uh, send yourself an email. So what are some of the other things besides the emails and the journaling that you've used in order to uh, share your story in book form? Um, a, a lot of the ways that I would be able to keep writing is by, um, I have playlists and playlists that I listen to a lot that will um, kind of jog my memory and kind of put me in the spot that I need to be. Because when I really writing, it's almost like a trance-like state. And... Um, like, it's very hard to pull out of that. It's very hard to get there sometimes, depending on what's going on. But um, I think music is probably one of the number one things that, that I use to kind of get me ready to write. And what was that? What, what is the thing that helps you get into that? Music is one of the... Yeah. I must have missed something. What is the thing that helps you get into that mindset so that you can write? Music. 
music. I listen to a lot of music, and I have, I have a lot of uh, like YouTube playlists that I that I work with that kind of puts me in the space I need to be. Okay, and what are some of the the songs on the playlist you use when you're trying to write? Um, it depends on what book I'm writing. Um, they all have um, like main songs. Um, or with a gray, it was um, "Sound of Violence" by Disturbed, the remake version that was the big one hit. Um, Sheila's Men is. Uh, Breath of Life. It's from uh, Florence and the Machine, I think. One, uh, one of the Snow White movie soundtracks. So okay. it was a big one for that. And then um, I'm working on two books right now, and the main songs for those um, is for uh, one of my childhood that includes my, um, some of my grandmother's story is um return to innocence by enigma and the other one is jamie's got it done it's gonna be a really fun book so all right and then you uh are published with a, a traditional publishing company is that correct yes sheila's men does have uh, a traditional publisher uh, called van rye publishing and they have really spent a lot of a lot of money and effort to invest in in this book, and they feel that it is timeless and needs to be heard and needs to be read. So I'm very um, I'm very blessed to have them in my corner, and they have been a wonderful support. Yeah, that's that's very encouraging because I have a lot of friends who are authors and. I've read many posts about publishing companies that uh, sign authors and release books, but depend more on the author than on the on themselves to generate the sales. That uh, not a lot of marketing being put behind books from from some of the traditional publishers. So that's very encouraging. Um, I think that it kind of goes both ways. I mean, going to do well, for in my instance, they have um, a certain um they're investing a lot in the marketing and i'm really far i'm really happy what they're doing and they have like a complete place so you know so i know exactly what they're doing. but an author needs to do their part too so it kind of really does go both ways and did they reach out to you or did you find them um i found them i actually submitted um, tried agents at first but it's kind of controversial material and and they told me that i had very detailed um rejection letters lots of them and they said you know i just don't think that i can represent this because it's so controversial because it is so honest um and they would say you know that it's very powerful and it needs to be heard they just weren't up to the challenges and then so I started submitting it to um, small publisher. And whenever I did that, I actually had um, four um, publishers offer me traditional um, contracts. 
And um, I went with the one, I went with Van Rye just simply because um, they seemed the most passionate about the work. I see, is that Van Roy or Van Rye? Van Rye, R-Y-E, V-A-N-R-Y-E. Okay. I'll be sure to get people their website so that anybody interested in the book can support you as well. Um, and approximately how many letters did you send out? I mean, how many rejections are we talking about before you, before you finally got started getting these responses back that they were interested in publishing? Um, I think I sent it to, um, 50 or 75, somewhere around in there, um, agents that rejected wow. it. Yeah. And then, um, and that was on my second round. So altogether, probably a hundred because I start out, you know, doing, okay, I'm going to do this as fiction. So I don't have to say that it's a true story. And then whenever I, and then I just kind of stopped and I took a break and I did some soul searching and took care of some legal stuff. That way there'd be some legal documentation. And, you know, did some, did a police, I did a police report and was very thorough. And, you know, I filed for a protection order, which I lost and um, which did made no sense at all because um, I had like screenshots where he had threatened me and I had all of this evidence, but just because I was helping like his most recent victim um, and there was a situation where you know, they caught us together and they took pictures and they said that because I was talking to her that it, it destroyed my credibility. And I'm like, okay, that makes no sense, but it's great for my cause because I can literally show <laughs> physical proof that like these people are not here to, to help as much as they should be. And I think a lot of change needs to happen. Um, but whenever I got all that done and I sat down, my fiance is like, you know, you don't try, if you're not doing anything, then you know, not many any stuff, nothing came. So I started sending it to small publishers, but you don't have to have an agent to have something traditionally published. And I started sending it out and it was within a week. Within a week it was up. So that happened so very small, so so small publishers, regional publishers, university presses, um less less likely to require you to have an agent in order to in order to reply to a query letter. Yes. There's quite a few book, uh, places out there used to be really cautious of what you're doing. Um, my particular company um, for um, aspiring authors, it's a good company because, you know, they do uh, editorial services and, and they do do cyber publishing where, you know, people can pay. Um, I was very fortunate that they were able to invest fully in, in my, and I didn't have to pay for anything. And, you know, they're standing behind me with this book and, and they have invested, you know, the editorial staff and, um, you know, the cover line and adding all of those things did for me. And um, I didn't have to worry about it. I didn't have to, to pay because Again, they made an investment in, in Sheila's men, and I'm very proud of that. Right. But it sounds like you went in eyes wide open. And for anybody who doesn't understand, there are basically three kinds of publishing. There's self-publishing where you do it on your own and you pay all your expenses. Uh, there's traditional publishing where 
they decide to invest in an author and they provide the editing and the cover art and do the research and do the promotion. And then there's a third group, what are generally referred to as vanity publishing, which is basically where you pay somebody to do all the work, but there's generally not a guarantee of promotion on the back end. So you will have a finished book. You will be able to show people you're a published author, but it's generally fairly expensive. And from what I've heard, more expensive than just traditionally self-publishing, doing all the work yourself. So uh, it's, it's one of those things you have to be aware of when you're querying people is to make sure that they are actually investing in you and not, you know, wanting you to invest thousands in them. Absolutely true. Um, my first book, Within the Gray, um, was they call hybrid or vanity presses. And that's what they were, although they said they're selective. They're really, I don't think, but <laughs> um, I went through, um, I'm just being honest, <laughs> but I went into that eyes wide because they were offering me, you know, they were going to do all this stuff, you know, I have to pay, but it's going to go through like three different editorial phases and, um, you know, they're going to do all the stuff. And so I went ahead and invested in that, like knowing what was going on, because at that point I was already writing Sheila's Men and I wanted to focus on it and I used it as a learning experience so I could learn, you know, kind of behind the scenes of what it was like to publish and work with editors and work with designers and everything was done um, professionally and um, I actually went through and, and edited the book again right before it was a print so I could make sure that everything was as, as good as I could make it. So I used it as a, um, as a learning experience, and that really helped me grow as an author. So if you're aware of what you're doing, it's a whole lot different than being hoodwinked. You know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, the other thing that you can always look at it if you want is you can see that book, that, that first book, uh, Into the Gray, that you, that you Vanity published for shorthand purposes. Um, also gives you some credibility when you reach it, start starting writing those query letters for Sheila's Men, I imagine. You know, you, you have more confidence in yourself because you have a work out there. And it, it kind of sends a message to the uh, traditional publishers that you know what it's going to take in order to get a book from first draft to, to finished, man, finished uh, book actually out there on the shelf somewhere. Yes. I mean, they're not, they want to be a lot of, a lot of sales. So like for that to matter a whole lot, but it does show consistency where you're starting to quit about this book. Um, and whenever you're starting to build that, that reputation up, because it's not just one book, you know, oh, this is my first book because now they know that you can consistently release um, books. So I'm at about one a year. There was a slight delay on Sheila's men just because I freaked out for a second. Um, <laughs> um, but so it shows consistency and it shows like growth and agents are very interested in that. I don't have an agent yet. And, um, depending on how it goes with, um, the small press, um, I'm not sure that I'm going to be overly concerned about that. Right. Well, uh, whether or not you, you need an agent generally comes down to what your goals are for your future writing. I mean, if 
if your goal is Hollywood blockbuster based on your books, then you probably need an agent. But if your goal is to publish about one book a year to change people's lives and to receive a reasonable amount of income doing it, then you probably don't need an agent. Exactly. So what's happened? And who knows? An agent may come along that has seen the books. So, and that's the that's the really difficult thing, isn't? It? When you're doing stuff like this, whether it's creating a book, a podcast, a film, you really have to tell yourself that it's a process. I mean, you really have to let go of immediate gratification, immediate rewards if you're going to do something like this, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I was just talking to my managing editor yesterday. Or the day before, because, um, you know, we're, we're not really ranking. Um, I mean, we're ranking in the top 100 and some cat and some cat which is where um, the initial release happened and available about this. But, um, you know, he said, you know what, it's not it's marathon. You got this. You know, this is a timeless book. It's going to take some time. You know, it may not sell a whole lot in the beginning, but it's probably going to pick up steam and still be very successful. He was very encouraged, and that was nice. So. Yeah, and I personally think it's it's sad that the only rankings that seem to matter for most uh, for most people are the rankings immediately after a book is published. I have a really good friend named Adriana Gavazzoni, who's a, an author of League of Thrillers from, from Brazil. And what is it, two months back, her first novel from like six years ago got rediscovered and was an Amazon bestseller. You know, it's. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's, uh, you never know what's going to happen. No, you don't. There you go. Just, you just have to continue to do the work, and sometimes it's difficult to have that um, faith. And you mentioned having an editor. That must be really helpful, knowing you, you have people who are, who've been through the process and who are encouraging you, which is something uh, everybody should be, should, should be trying to find and have in their life. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, I have. I imagine your fiance was your was your first real encouraging person when it came to your writing. Um. Yeah, he doesn't really like to read, though. But (laughs) (laughs) so he hasn't read them. He knows. (laughs) <laughs> he, he was the gist of it but he's a very creative person too and he's um you know he's um ready to graduate with his psychology degree and he's also a musician and but he's he's very supportive and very encouraging for me to be able to you know reach out to people because we both want to help people and you know we both want to do what we can to to make a positive impact on the world we're just kind of doing it from different angles and so he's, he's very supportive and he's very loving. And whenever I was having really bad days, whenever I was writing, you know, he was there to kind of to fall on to and safe place to land. Yeah. Well, since he's a musician, maybe they'll let him play on the audiobook. Right. <laughs> okay. So you, you mentioned that after you 
had been preaching the book for a while, you uh, you address some of the legal issues by getting a filing a police report and trying to get a restraining order. So is that something that the agents told you you needed to do, or is that just something you figured out on your own? And what was that process like? Uh, oh, and that's what they decided to do just because I wanted some kind of documentation and DC had to, to say anything. And, you know, I, I wanted to live that experience because, you know, how am I going to help people and, and step against um, sexual and domestic violence if I wasn't brave enough to follow the rubric and do those things myself? And, you know, part of it was about the book, but part of it was how can I, you know, walk with someone who is going through that process if I haven't been through it myself? And so it was a lot of overcoming fears and, and things that I felt that I need to do, um, both for advocacy and helping other people and to, to feel like I could release story as, as it is, which is based on a true story. Okay. And uh, the women that you generally work with at the Survivors Advocacy Outreach Program, what would you say is the, are the, you know, the main reasons why many of them have difficulty getting help from an agency like the one you work at? Um, well, I just volunteered kind of far away from them. Uh, I think a lot of women are just afraid. Uh, a, a lot of people that I work with are actually more through social media than through the, um, the SAE, the Survivor Advocacy Outreach Program. And so I work with a lot of people more on a personal and individual basis than I do with them. It's kind of a balance of both. And a lot of the times they don't feel safe and, you know, they're not sure where to go. They're not sure who to talk to. And they're afraid people won't believe their story. And what's really sad about that is, you know, people tend to say a lot at, Know, oh, she's just lying or making up to get attention or cause trouble. But the statistics is like less two percent people that say that they have sexually assaulted. Less than two percent are lying. So that means like most people are telling the truth, and most of them get accused of lying. Okay. Um. You know, there's a lot of conversation out there about uh, getting out of a comfort zone. And, you know, a lot of, I, I've, I've often wondered if part of the, part of this, part of what goes on is we can become comfortable with anything, no matter how painful it is, because the alternative can always be scarier. Yeah. Um, a lot of women, um, abusers become most violent whenever you're trying to escape. That's when, um, people are in danger of losing their lives and, um, it can be very dangerous, but it can be done, but people need to realize that, you know, the whole, well, why didn't you just leave? Probably because they're afraid of dying. And maybe you should talk to, you know, people need to talk to each other with a little more sensitivity 
and understanding and realize that it's a whole lot more to it than just being hit. A lot of uh, mental and psychological abuse is very real and unfortunately isn't taken very seriously. And unfortunately, we don't do a good job of dealing with mental health and mental illness in, in the U.S., period, much less with the area of, uh, of abuse on, on women or abuse on spouses because there's still a lot of, uh, of outdated beliefs as far as as, that, as far as how that happens. Yes, that's very true. Okay, so what are some of the, th I, I know you can't give people advice. I don't want to get you in any legal trouble, but what are some things you've seen that have worked for people in the past who are, who are at that point where they're ready to, to face that fear, uh, possibly the fear even of death in order to get out? Um. You really do need um, support um, from other people. It's good to have someone to talk to. And, you know, as far as advice, you know, I would definitely say that groups, you got to find your people. And if you have to do it on your own, then you need to find the safest way possible to do that. And um, I do tend to give just personal advice and, and things of that nature. And I think the healing process is often overlooked and, and people aren't talking about it very much because a lot of women after or men have gone through um, sexual assault and abuse, they don't know what to do to heal. And, and, you know, they try therapy, but therapy really isn't enough because, you know, you're seeing them like once or twice a month. If you're lucky, you can do a little more. But the therapist only sees like this little window of the things um, that they are told. And that's not the full story. And what I recommend is um, to, for people not to be afraid to be triggered. Because a, a lot of people are. And it's whenever you're triggered and those emotions are raw that you kind of need to, to document that. Um, I recommend um, Sheila's Men is a great tool for that. Um, I've talked to several um, people who are, who are using as a tool, but whenever you get triggered, um, either by book or maybe it's a TV show or a song that you hear, it's really important to, you know, get out your journal and write down what you feel and just let it out. You know, everything that you feel, your self-doubt, your loathing, you know, everything that you're sensing in that moment and just kind of let it go, allow yourself to feel those emotions and then whenever, you know, you're out of that moment and you start to feel a little bit better, you're not in that traumatizing, triggering point, um, it's important to go back and read through it and kind of see if you see any patterns and start to ask yourself why and start really digging deep. And that's how you can kind of help yourself heal. And then you can take, that's something that you can take to your therapist and they can work with you. And that's a tool to kind of dig deeper, to dig out those roots and those, those old habits that you get used to so you can live a fulfilling and, and beautiful life after trauma. And I think that's so important that people realize that there is hope. I, I was living in hell for a long time and now I need a beautiful, very hopeful life. And I am hoping that I can get 
give that to other people. Okay, so you've gone from uh, being widowed at a young age to being in a, a relationship where you were abused to finally getting out of that to being in a happy relationship now and about to be married. What are some of the things that you feel like the most important things that you've learned for all these experiences that you can share with other people who are uh, are living through their own trials, uh, regardless of what the cause of those may be? I think it's important to realize that you know there is hope on the other side of this. You can get out. It is possible, and there's a much better life out there for you. I think that healing, really focusing on healing and getting through that trauma and realizing that there's there's hope on the other side. There is light at the end of the tunnel and you don't have to die to end it. Life is much more beautiful on the other side. And I think it's so important for people to realize that, to have that drive, to realize I can do this. You can just find people you can reach out to. There are support groups on Facebook. Um, I'm in a lot of those. And, and sometimes, you know, if a story resonates with me and you know, I kind of contact those people, you know, contact someone, get out, do your journaling, dig deep. It's so important to be able to help you live the better life that, that you're dreaming of. And it does exist and you can get there. Well, I appreciate you sharing your experiences and spending some time with me today. Uh, so, y'all, this is uh, this is Jenna Ashland, and uh, so so I make so that I make sure we get them correct. Would you please give out your website, your social media links to people? And uh, um, you can Google um, author Jenna Ashland, and you should be able to find um, on Facebook. So it's face.com author Jenna Ashlyn. Um, I used to have a website, but I haven't really been maintaining that. I've just kind of been sticking with social media, but you can find an email list um, on social media that will um, help keep in contact. But I'm also on um, Twitter under Jenna Ashlyn one. And then um, on Instagram, it is Jenna Ashel. So I couldn't get the Y in at the end of that. <laughs> so I'm not that hard to find, <laughs> but right. I am out there. So if anybody has any questions or anything like that, please reach to me and I would be more than happy to help any way I can. Well, thank you. I really do appreciate it. And I hope that people do follow your examples, especially where it concerns uh, mm -hmm. triggers and reaching out to others. Okay. All right. It was wonderful talking with you tonight. Today. Today, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we had another great conversation.
as y'all can tell from the audio, I'm still having a little bit of technical difficulties with the new computer, but, um, you know, sometimes that's really what it comes down to is just going ahead and doing it anyway, even when it doesn't turn out anywhere close to perfect. So we had another great conversation this time with Jenna Ashland. Got to hear her amazing story of, uh, of tragedy and overcoming abuse and, you know, have the hope of this wedding and, and her big future as an author. So, so many great things. Uh, I'd say the, the things that came out to me were having the grandmother who didn't give up on her education or her life and you know, ended up becoming a nurse in her later years. I think that's a great example. We, we probably all have those examples in our lives, but sometimes you got to sit down and think about them and, and, you know, realize there are people in your in your family's history or in your past where, you know, people by their example showed you that you're capable of doing uh, big things. So, in my case, it was a, it was the teacher in my high school. It was a scoutmaster. It was my dad. So, lots of great influences, and most of you have those. You just have forgotten about them. So maybe sit down and think about that. I also liked what you said about writing how. When she was working, she would just send herself short emails. And when she had time, she would journal. So between the two, she was able to create the content that would eventually become two books with two more on the way. And I'm hoping that gets some of y'all to thinking more creatively about how you can write, even though you don't feel like you have the time to write. And you know, maybe it's emails, text messages, a journal. Maybe you buy a little audio recorder. Maybe you get a, maybe you carry around some crayons with you. I'm not sure. Whatever you, whatever you think might work for you. Um, so I, I took that. And then also how, you know, her fiance encouraged her to, to continue the effort on reaching out to publishers and, how she realized that if she pitched the smaller publishers, the regional publishers, she would have a better chance of getting accepted. And she ended up with a company that not only wanted to publish her book, but wanted to publish it bad enough to invest the costs. And trust me, it is expensive to have a book professionally edited, to have an artist create a wonderful cover, to submit it and format it, or in this case, have a publishing company submit it and format it and get it ready for print and print who, are, who knows how many copies of it. That's all expensive stuff. So then to find a company that's willing to invest in her, that's so cool. And then to know that she doesn't have an agent or a publicist. So many encouraging things from our conversation. I hope that you were encouraged as well. Uh, I do hope you will visit our sponsor, Blueberry, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com or as they tell me when they started, they couldn't afford to eat. And uh, if you're thinking about starting a podcast, I do hope you will check them out that we can get off to a good start. Also hope you'll visit my website, theblindblogger.net and wyexcuse.com. You can check out the other wonderful podcasts that are hosted by people with disabilities. You can connect with me through that website. If you're wanting to start a podcast, you know, maybe you are... Maybe you have a disability and you want to host a show. Maybe you're somebody who 
wants to bring attention or awareness to a particular cause that affects people with disabilities, you can just head over to What's Your Excuse? It's wyexcuse.com. Check out the show's page and send me an email. Uh, we have a wonderful host over there, Emily Trepanier, just released a new episode on Shredding for Gold. So I do hope you'll check out theblindblogger.net, wyexcuse.com. And if you want to do podcast interviews to share your story and promote your work, I hope you will reach out to me for that as well. I've been doing the outreach for myself, friends and clients for over nine years now. I know what it takes to get you on the top podcasts, radio shows, or to have you featured in blogs and online magazines. So again, theblindblogger.net, just click the online publicity tab. I do hope y'all are having a good day. I know that it's difficult with Omicron coming and COVID hitting us again for the fourth or fifth or sixth time. I do hope that you're staying safe, that you're being positive and encouraging, that you're finding ways to take those small steps towards your own big goal, and that you're celebrating whatever accomplishments you have had so far in 2022. All right, until next time, I appreciate you. I know you have a lot of other things you could do with your time, a lot of other shows you could watch or listen to, and I really do hope that we have encouraged you today. As I say, if Jenna can do it, then what's your excuse? All right. Thank you now. Take care. Bye. Too many times we stand aside and let the water slip away. To what we put off to tomorrow has finally come today. So don't stand upon the shoreline and say you're satisfied. Now choose to chance the rapids and dare to dance the tide.